0: Well, good morning. My name is Matt Kerber, pastor at City Reformed, one of our pastors, and it's a a joy to be with you today. Um, As we uh, have mentioned a couple times, this will be, as far as we know, our last day in this building in the 20th Century Club. Uh, Over the years, we've reminded people often that we don't actually own this place. We just rent here, Um, and it has been for about five and a half years, I think, a really good place for our congregation to be. Um, We are so thankful uh, for the time I' here. Um, we are dismissing our children for children's church and we are asking them to come down the steps uh, instead of out into the hallway. Uh, one of the things about being a rental um, <clears throat> is we do have to stay flexible. Um, we are not alone in the building. We've already mentioned there's another group here today. The Jesters are gathering for their annual, uh, one of their annual celebrations. Um, so we're asking everyone here to, to uh, uh, stay as much as you can on this floor. We'll respect their, their space and they'll try to respect ours. If you go upstairs, you may end up in the Jester's joke and we just don't quite know what will happen. So um, it is uh, it is an, an interesting element of uncertainty uh, that keeps us on our toes. Uh, over uh, about 14 and a half years ago, I was arriving in Pittsburgh to take part in, in, with others in a, a church plant effort that would become City Reform Presbyterian Church. On the, uh, on the way, I was uh, at one point talking with my uncle about the the challenges and opportunities of being part of a church plant. And he gave me this advice, I'll paraphrase him. He said, what sounds like what you're doing is hard. Whatever you do, don't tell the people it's easy, just tell them it's important. That advice really stuck with me at the time and has been with us over the years. And I think it could be a theme of many things we try to do as a church. Today we'll be moving to a new venue. It's not easy, but it's important. And many of you know this already, for you perhaps even just coming here is something that at many points along the way on a Sunday morning you realize this isn't easy. Maybe a little bit of a drive or you fight for parking. This morning I was fighting for parking and as I walked here I was stepping over the places where someone had been sick on the sidewalk yesterday and I reminded myself this isn't easy but it's important. As a church, we've always attempted to be in the middle of the university center, and we're going to be sliding a bit more to the edge of that with our move. We plan to provide uh, uh, transportation for students. We'll be, next week, we'll be getting a, with a shuttle, a shuttle service. Um, for some of you, uh, getting to church will be just a little bit harder next week. For some of you, it'll be easier. Either way, it's important. That theme, though, runs through other things we do as a congregation. The text today that we're reading as we start into a new book of the Bible, the Old Testament prophet of of, uh, Zechariah, is not easy. Uh, We're going to be moving through this book, two sections of the book, but together we'll move through its entirety between now and Easter, or at least that's the plan. And there'll be many times where we're reading this and you'll think, this is not easy, Jim already uh, pointed out it's an ancient text written to people many years ago with prophetic images. We're not used to that. This is not easy, but it's important. It's a window for us into God's work in the world. It invites us to step out of our own immediate experiences and think of the world through a different vantage point. First of all, from the vantage point, of uh, a group of people living after their exile in Babylon, post-exile Israel living in the year 520 BC or thereabouts, in the the ancient Near East. It's a very different vantage point on life. But also through this point of a people that are very different in a a style of writing, prophetic writing that's sometimes very different from anything we're used to hearing, God will give us a perspective on his work in history. A work that is just as necessary for us as it was for them 25 centuries ago. As we move through the uh, prophet uh, Zechariah, we'll be thinking of these two vantage points. First of all, trying as best we can to think of his place in history. To learn of what he and those he was writing to were facing. And to think about God's work of redemption from their perspective. But we'll also make sure we never lose sight of the bigger story. The story that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end. The story of a God who is determined to save his people. To go to a people who are in the mire and muck of their own rebellion, their own determination and sin to live their own way. But a God who brings grace and hope and salvation. And I think we'll find that from these different vantage points we will see something so important and so life-giving for our lives. My hope and prayer is God will catch us just a little bit off guard as we move through something that's, frankly, not easy, but speaks to some of the most important things we could see. Zechariah was a prophet, as I mentioned, writing in 520 BC, writing to a group of people who had returned from exile in Babylon and were seeking to rebuild everything they knew. The task in front of them was immensely challenging, and at times they were so given to despair, facing the enormity of the task and the opposition from without, that they, were, they actually just ground to a halt. In the book of Ezra, we read of this incident where, having begun the work of rebuilding the temple, it stopped. Then Ezra tells us that God raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And together, God used them to renew the hope and restore people in the process of rebuilding the temple. I want to begin by reading just two verses from this that set the historic context of the book of of Zechariah. Ezra chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. If you were reading through the book of Ezra, you would perhaps come to this, this point, and you would learn of the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, and you might ask yourself, how did they do it? How did they support the people in this enormous task, in this uh, seemingly uh, overwhelming and difficult project? Um, As we begin to move into the book of Zechariah, we will see, how did God encourage his people when facing an enormous task? So we'll begin with our first reading from the book of Zechariah, and again, a warning, sometimes this will seem difficult to follow. Old names, prophetic images, a situation not immediately familiar But in this, a window to God's work. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers, therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, did they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry, but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, I gave it a longer than normal introduction. I was thinking of it as sort of a pep talk. Um, We're going to read through some prophetic images here. That's not easy. Uh, The book, uh, early part of the book of Zechariah includes eight visions. We read the first of them today. There was sort of an introductory word of uh, of speaking, where Zechariah is speaking to the people, reminding them of uh, why they got in this situation, how their ancestors rebelled against God. They were taken into exile, and then they came back. And then he offered here the first of these eight visions in the book. And uh, you may be thinking, you didn't give me enough of a pep talk. I I don't have any idea what that was all about. There's a man on the horse. There's a measuring line over Jerusalem. What do I do with that? Well, prophetic imagery is different. It can be difficult for us. Um, Sometimes the difficulty lies in that we, we are not sure what to do with the details. The good news is it was difficult also for Zechariah. And one of the advantages we'll have is that throughout the book, he will explain to us what's going on. So we want to give particular attention to the questions that he asks and the answer that a a divine messenger, an angel, gives to him about what he's seen. That's the thing that we're going to look at. But perhaps the, the angle I want to connect most as we look at our first image is the way God can use these strange things to speak to our imaginations. The people of God were stuck. They had returned from exile and found the task of rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple was bigger than they had imagined. They they started, the book of Ezra tells us, to lay the foundation and then they stopped. There was opposition from without. They had their own concerns that were looming large. And God needed to raise up prophets to encourage them in the work. I want to make that connection, though, the connection of this prophetic message, this first of eight visions that Zechariah offers, and the encouragement that it was meant to bring to people. I think, actually, the connection is not as distant as it may seem. Though we're reading an ancient book about ancient people, we know something about what it means to be stuck. Perhaps in your life, you have circumstances that seem beyond your control. You have things you need to press through that seem so large, you're tempted to just stop entirely or just procrastinate indefinitely. Or perhaps the challenges of your own heart, patterns of behavior you need to change, relationships that just seem like they've been this way forever, stuck in unhealthiness. What do we do? And when we're stuck, we are tempted to give up hope. We struggle to believe anything could be different. We find our life and our perspective dominated by what we've known and what's immediately true around us. That was true for these people living 25 centuries ago, and that is true for us. The big picture of what Zechariah does and what's important for us to hear is that Zechariah brings a prophetic message to them. At times, it'll be commands from God, do this. Turn back to me. It was very clearly said. But also will be this series of visions, this series of uh, people doing seemingly strange and unusual things, a rider on the red horse, a series of patrols that have gone out over all the earth and have brought back messages. Why does Zechariah do it? Why does God do it that way? Why doesn't he just tell us what he wants us to know? And I I think the answer lies in part that the the process of giving hope and encouragement to the people of God as they faced the the, the need to step out of their their stuckness and get on with the task is he has to speak to their imagination their hope their uh, their their vision of what can be and if we can harness that power of uh, uh, ourselves the the Prophetic images are incredibly powerful. What we're going to look at in the passages, we'll just sort of identify with the ways they were stuck. And then look at two ways Zechariah calls them out of it. We'll identify with the situation they were in and make some connections to our lives. And then we'll see the two ways Zechariah calls them out of it. One of them is using this prophetic image to, to stir their imagination, to think of God's work in the world In a different way. So three ways that uh, they were stuck. Three ways we also can be stuck. uh, Incidentally. And the first is they were stuck. In the face of an immense task. We already read Ezra. It says that God needed to raise up the prophets. To help them with the rebuilding of the temple. Last summer we read through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah came about 80 years later. But it's the same time period. It's the people of God rebuilding after exile. In the uh, opening uh, a couple of verses of Zechariah, he, God warns the people, don't be like your fathers. Their rebellion led them to be taken away into exile. Now they've returned, but the rebuilding's hard. Eighty years later, there would still be things that needed to be rebuilt. Nehemiah would have to come and help them get the walls of the city built. But their first task, priority number one, was to rebuild the temple. It was the temple that made Jerusalem special. It was the temple in which the sacrifices were made for forgiveness. It was in the temple that the very presence of God would dwell so that God would be with his people. He would be their God and with them in a special way. And so very be- early in the beginning of the book of Ezra, not long after the people got back into the promised land, back and back to Jerusalem, they began to rebuild But the task was immense. The temple was built the first time by Solomon at the height of the power of the kingdom of Israel. He had far-reaching resources and great financial uh, uh, abilities to hire craftsmen from far-off lands. They quarried large stones and brought in big timbers. And now this small group of ragtag people, those who returned from exile, were, were just living in the The shadow of their former glory. And the task ahead of them was immense. The task that had taken Solomon at the height of his powers, years to accomplish. Now they were going to have to do on their own. With very little assistance. So they were tempted to give up. They needed prophetic encouragement. They had come face to face with a task that was so big it seemed... Like it would just uh, loom over them, and they needed to be encouraged. Let me just pause there for a second and ask if you can identify with that. Do you have tasks in your life that seem too big for you? Perhaps it's a, a relational task, a relational work that you need to engage in, and you think, I just don't think I can do this, it's too much work. Perhaps you're working through a course of study, a a program that you're on the beginning end of it and you see all that is laid out before you and think, I don't know if I can do it. Maybe a renovation project or a way that you, God has convicted you that you need to change and even all of your energy and effort seems to be making so little difference. When the task looms large in front of us, we can begin to feel stuck typed in my notes here. That's how I'm feeling now as I write the sermon. <laughs> Early in the week, I was really excited about Zechariah. I mean, I, I was beginning to see the visions and the connections, and I sat down, and I thought, how am I going to make this ancient thing relevant? And the task seemed really big. <laughs> so I played a couple games on my phone. Uh, I watched something on TV. I'm like, oh, I'm procrastinating. This is so big. We need a prophetic word when tasks loom large. The second way that these people are stuck, however, and again, I think we can relate, and that is they they came from a rebellious heritage. This first section, verses 1 through 7, Zechariah gets right to the business of what's going on. He says, listen, uh, the reason Jerusalem is destroyed is because your forefathers didn't listen to me. Don't be like them. You got got to change this pattern, this generational pattern of how people respond to me. It needs to be altered. What does he say to him? We we look at the passage. Uh, It says, "The Lord was very angry with your fathers." Verse two. Therefore, say to them, Zechariah. Thus declares the Lord of hosts: Return to me. You need to make a change. He says, verse 4, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Former prophets mean before the exile. If you're in the adult Sunday school class, you're reading Isaiah. This is the sort of thing Zechariah is thinking of. Isaiah warned them and they didn't listen. But they did not heed, did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded, my prophets, my servants and prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Yeah, in the form of the Babylon, Babylon Empire, sweeping across the land, destroying the city, the temple, and taking them away roughly for a period of, of 70 years. And it was there, it was there in exile that they said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he was dealt with us. Yes, they learned, but they learned after the fact. Don't be like them. The ways in which the patterns of your family threaten to trap you? It's kind of, a, in some ways, an obvious thing. It doesn't uh, always come up in our text Uh, But it's very easy for us to look at our lives, our circumstances, our families, and say, you know, uh, everyone else in my family kind of got stuck in this place. Who am I to think it's different? Perhaps the circumstances in which you grew up in were immensely difficult. And though they are real and they shape you, they do not need to define you. There is a hope that moves beyond the circumstances of our own generational realities, Perhaps we need to turn to the Lord and break free and uh, find new patterns of living, but if we're honest, we recognize there is a danger of being stuck in something and saying it's just the way it's always been. Third way that people get stuck, we see in this passage, uh, is actually sort of the background of a whole lot of things that happen. Uh, One of the reasons they're stuck is because there was opposition from the outside. Not only was the task itself big, and not only were they wrestling with trying to live differently than their ancestors before God, but there was very real opposition from the outside. Now, we see that alluded to in the text, but it's explicit in the book of Ezra. They laid the foundation for the temple, and then they stopped building until Zechariah came along. And the immediate reason given in the book of Ezra is that the surrounding people The groups of people around Jerusalem didn't like what they were doing, and they began to threaten them. Again, those of you who were here last summer, you read the book of Nehemiah, knows that this is pretty standard stuff. They are, first of all, living under the power of the Persian Empire. And then all of these other groups of people around them don't want to see a new city built. They don't want to see another player in the regional balance of power, and so they work to oppose them. There's actually very real opposition coming in from outside that's making it really hard. And that, in many ways, is really the theme of this vision that we see beginning in verse 8. Again, what's pretty confusing to us was a little more familiar to them. Zechariah says in verse 8, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and behind him are other horses. Now, we're not familiar with uh, people on horses riding around and, and sharing reports of things. But if you lived in the Persian Empire in the year 520 BC, it would have been familiar. The Persian Empire was vast, extending throughout most of the known world. And the way it was kept together was multiple people on horses moving around with information. If you lived in a Persian-controlled village like these people did, you would have been familiar with Persian messengers riding on horses, giving reports, so that the military power of the Persian empire, empire would keep everything in place. And we see exactly that thing happening here. Fortunately, Zechariah doesn't fully understand. He asks in verse 9, what are these, my Lord? Uh, and the angel who was with him says, I will show you what they are. It is a little bit confusing here. Throughout all of the visions, there'll be an angel that speaks to Zechariah. We, we think that's different than the rider on the red horse, but it's a little bit hard to follow in the vision. Either way, we can be very thankful that there's an interpreter. Verse 10, we're told, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And the answer, and they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we've patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So just understand what's happening in the vi- in the vision here what Zechariah sees is a heavenly parallel to this earthly reality. Just as the Persian empire sends out its riders to extend its influence and maintain its control over the empire, there is a God in heaven, the Lord of hosts, who has an angelic patrol over the earth, so to speak. Now, did God literally ha- have to send angels on horses? Um, I think most likely not. right? Uh, but this was the reality of God's heavenly presence in a vision given to him in a way that was familiar. Just as Persia extends their influence and dominance over the world, so too there is a God in heaven that has a patrol that goes out over the earth and accomplishes his purposes. The first report isn't good. We'll see the the circle being completed here. Verse 12, uh, we heard the earth is at rest. And we may be tempted to think that's really good news, isn't it? At rest, sounds good. Not if being at rest means that the Persian empire that controls you and the regional powers that are oppressing you show no signs of going anywhere. That's why the, the angel of the Lord cries out in verse 12, O oh, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? You see, to summarize the message of these angelic horses on patrol, the reality of their situation is in a international, geopolitical way, they were stuck. The Persian Empire doesn't appear to be going anywhere. They t- they say, the regional powers that have already stopped the building of the temple that are causing so many problems, the the competing groups of people that live around you, they don't appear to be going anywhere. That's the reality of the situation. We've sent out the patrols. The reports are in. We've analyzed it all. The information is this: you're stuck. There you are. A massive project, a whole history of rebellion against God and fruitless living. And the opposition around you, it's not going anywhere. No wonder they're stuck. Do you, you identify with this part as well? Circumstances beyond your control, difficult people, difficult circumstances. Circumstances. I mean, the modern day parallels if you're toiling along in your office cubicle with a boss who's a tyrant and the head of HR comes in and says, good news, no one's going anywhere for a while. And you're thinking, that's not good news. I'm praying for a shake-up. Praying for anything that changes these circumstances, but nothing's on the horizon. It's at rest in a bad way. It's come to rest in a bad and difficult situation. They're stuck. They need the prophet of God to bring a word of encouragement and hope. Let's look at the two things Zechariah does. Two things that are encouraging to them and two things that can be encouraging to us. The first may not immediately seem to be encouraging, but it really is. Zechariah says, repent. Turn. Turn back to God. Now, you might not hear that immediately as good news because repentance, or that is turning back to God, means we have to acknowledge in full honesty before God that we are part of the problem. We've been part of the problem. But God invites them to change and calls them to change. He reminds them in that very statement that change is possible pastor friend of mine uh, likes to remind people that we all have a tendency to tell our stories in a way that make ourselves completely passive. You ever do that? Do you find yourself talking about your background? You say, well, you know, if you understood my family, you'd know where I'm at. If you understood the challenges I face and the opposition outside, you would know where I'm at. You know why I'm stuck. There's nothing I can do. And Zechariah says, There is something you can do. You can take ownership for your problem and you can repent. Now, saying this doesn't in any way minimize the realities of these other challenges, but it does tell us that we have a role and a responsibility, that change is possible. How often do you find yourself stuck and, you, and, and if you were able to pull yourself out of your circumstances, you would recognize, you know what, I'm actually part of the problem. It's not just these other things. I have a role in this. The good news is you, you do. The good news is you do and God calls you to turn back to him. This invitation to turn is not an activity we do on your own. Notice what it says. Turn back to me, says the Lord of hosts. return to me and I will return to you. (coughs) Our our processes of change and repentance are not done on our own in isolation, but they are fundamentally movements to the living God, the Lord of hosts. Even baked into this whole invitation, turn to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts, is this threefold repetition, Lord of hosts, that reminds us where the power lies. Yeah, the Persian armies have their power. The regional sources have their significance. They've got their own problems, and the, the broken down stones are big. But the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the heavenly armies, has power beyond all else. Turn to me, and I will turn to you. Return to me, God says, and I will come to you with the power. The God of the angel armies. As some some translators like to say, "Has power to intervene in your circumstances, will you turn to me? Friends, sometimes the first step in us getting unstuck is to remember that God has given us responsibility and we can take it in his power. That we can turn to him and see his power working in our lives if we're willing to take responsibility, to stand before him, to confess what's wrong and to seek his help to change. Second thing we see in the passage is the encouragement that comes from the, the second vision. This is the hope in God's power. Immediately after the, the horses return with their bad news, we've searched the world and you're stuck. The angel of the, the, angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, cries out and says, How long? And then we see in verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry. In verse, uh, uh, yeah, in verse 13, and the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked to me. From from a, uh, a human vantage point, and even from this sort of heavenly, omniscient vantage point, everything's stuck. Nothing's going to change, except God is present, and He's going to work. God says, "I'm here." I, I said, I, I was angry with your forefathers. You were taken into exile, but now I am jealous for your city. It's a weird way to talk, right? But God says, My love for you is so deep, I am fixated on you. Boy, if you hear that about yourself, it's encouraging, isn't it? God says, I am jealous for my people. I love them so deeply and dearly. I will stop at nothing to form them. Even shifting and shaping and moving the nations of the earth, I'll find them in exile. I will guide the empires to change them and to shape them that they would come back to me. I will stop at nothing to accomplish my purposes for them. He spoke gracious and comforting words, I'm jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations, I had a purpose, but they went about it, in, 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 whether it's the, uh, uh, the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, they furthered the disaster. God says, I'm going to work. In, in many ways, what he says in these next few lines in verse 16 is really the rest of the book of Zechariah. The Lord says, I have returned Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. The measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord shall again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. I'm going to do it, he says. What he's doing here, again, he's, he speaks to Zechariah, this image of heavenly reports and patrols. Ones he can understand, things he can relate to. He, he challenges him to view the world in a different way. And then he says, I'm here and I'm going to work. And it will be done. The first step and them getting back to rebuilding the temple is they needed to believe that something could be different. God says to them directly, I am here, I am jealous for your good, and I will do it. And they would. We know from the book of Ezra that within four years, they would rebuild the temple. It wouldn't be as glorious as it was in the days of Solomon, but it would be rebuilt. They would accomplish those tasks. The message of Zechariah would bring hope. Five centuries later, A young boy would be brought into the temple for the dedication ceremony. His name was Jesus. His parents, Mary and Joseph, were so poor they brought the the smallest offering that people could bring for the ceremony. What the Gospel of Matthew told us last fall is that when Jesus was born, he would be given the title Emmanuel or God with us. God himself and the person of Jesus would come to the temple. The presence of God would be there in a very real way. Years later, as he had grown to maturity and as the forces of religious opposition hardened against him, Jesus would again return to the temple and he would cleanse it of its impurities. And then he would be taken outside the city and he would offer himself as the one-time sacrifice for sins that would bring forgiveness for all of God's people. These two purposes of the temple, the presence of God and the forgiveness of sins, would come together in the person of Jesus Christ. In Him, we would know God is with us and for us. In Him, we would know there is forgiveness for all who repent. The building of the temple was essential because Jesus would one day walk into it. And through him, we can say these things are true of us, that God is deeply committed to his people, that he calls them to be more like Jesus, to change, in spite of their circumstances, in spite of your circumstances, in spite of your history, in spite of the enormity of the task that lies before you, God calls you, return, return. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you with the fullness of my power. The Holy Spirit, God says, I will pour out on the church as we gather today, not in a a temple made of bricks, but a temple made of people. You are the temple that God is building for his purpose. His spirit is here. When we gather in his name, whether it's in the 20th Century Club or Winchester Thurston or the little... Chapel building we own in Greenfield, when God's people throughout the world gather in the name of Jesus, the power of His Spirit is there. God is with us. And if that is true, we're never stuck. You're not stuck. Not because you have power and you're great, but because God is present and He is for you. Those are words of hope from Zechariah. Let's pray.